Well, the words that I'd like to direct your attention to this morning are found once again in the book of Numbers. And we're going to be looking at Numbers chapter 21. Numbers 21. Beginning in verse 1. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to Yahweh and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And Yahweh heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then Yahweh sent fiery serpents, and they bit the people, so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We sinned, for we have spoken against Yahweh and against you. Pray to Yahweh that he will take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And Yahweh said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And the people of Israel set out and camped at Oboth. And they set out from Oboth and camped at E-Abrahim, in the wilderness that is opposite Moab, toward the sunrise. From there they set out and camped in the valley of Zered. From there they set out and camped on the other side of the Arnon, which is in the wilderness that extends from the border of the Amorites. For the Arnon is the border of Moab, between Moab and the Amorites. Therefore it is said in the book of the wars of Yahweh, Waheb and Sufa and the valleys of the Arnon and the slope of the valleys that extends to the seat of Ar and leans to the border of Moab. And from there they continued to bear, that is, the well of which Yahweh said to Moses, Gather the people together so that I may give them water. Then Israel sang this song, Spring up, O well, sing to it, the well that the princes made, that the nobles of the people dug, with the scepter and with their staves. And from the wilderness they went on to Matana, and from Matana to Nahalil. And from Nahalel to Bamoth. And from Bamoth to the valley lying in the region of Moab by the top of Pisgah that looks down on the desert. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into the field or the vineyard. We will not drink the water of a well. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. But Sihon would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. He gathered all his people together and went out against Israel to the wilderness and came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. And Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok as far as to the Ammonites, for the border of the Ammonites was strong. And Israel took all these cities and Israel settled in all the cities of the Amorites in Heshbon. And in all its villages. For Heshbon was the city of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and taken all his land out of his hand as far as the Arnon. Therefore, the ballad singers say, Come to Heshbon, let it be built. Let the city of Sihon be established. For fire came out from Heshbon, flame from the city of Sihon. It devoured Ar of Moab and swallowed the heights of the Arnon. Woe to you, O Moab! You are undone, O people of Chemosh. He has made his sons fugitives and his daughters captives to an Amorite king, 
Sihon. So we overthrew them. Heshbon, as far as Debon, perished. And we laid waste as far as Nophah. Fire spread as far as Medeba. Thus Israel lived in the land of the Amorites. And Moses sent to spy out Jazer. And they captured its villages and dispossessed the Amorites who were there. Then they turned and went up by the way of Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, came out against them, he and all his people, to battle at Edrei. But Yahweh said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand, and all his people, and his land. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So they defeated him, and his sons, and all his people, until he had no survivor left. And they possessed his land. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me in prayer. Lord, it's so easy for us to lose heart. Lord, one cross word. One disappointed friend. One angry colleague. Loss of money. Frustrating neighbors. News. Lord, we were bombarded with things that can so easily discourage us. But Lord, we want to be a courageous people. Whose hearts are not downcast, but are confident. So, Lord, we, we, we acknowledge that we need help. So we pray that you would help us. That you would give us assurance of your kindness, your goodness, your provision, your sovereignty. Lord, that you would help us understand your word and its intent and how you would like us to respond in light of your word. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. For the sake of review, uh, you might recall that the book of Numbers is broken up according to locations, geography. Uh, five particular locations. Uh, the first five chapters uh, take place at Sinai, chapters 1 through 10. And then... There are two chapters that are devoted to their journey from Sinai to what's called Kadesh in the wilderness. That's chapters 11 and 12. And then chapters 13 through 20 are devoted to describing their wanderings in the wilderness over that 40-year period. And then chapter 21 is devoted, which is what we're looking at today, that chapter is devoted to their journey from um, the wilderness wanderings in Kadesh to the plains of Moab, where they will then enter the land. And the final 14 chapters are devoted to the, the events that took place on the plains of Moab. And so we're four-fifths of the way through, at least geographically speaking. So this is going to, by the end of chapter 21, it's going to bring us to an end of their wanderings, and then it's just preparation to enter the land. And this chapter is devoted to describing the major events that took place on that 400-mile journey where they left the plains of Kadesh and wanders all the way down to the Gulf of Aquaba so that they could circumvent the land of Edom. And they, they walk north, parallel in the end of Edom. They, they enter, they pass through um, Moab and then the land of the Ammonites, and they are going to fight with the Amorites in particular. That's who they do battle with. And this chapter highlights four ways that God provided for his people while they were on this 400 mile journey. And that's really the point of the chapter is to emphasize God is taking care of his people. And the four ways that are highlighted that he provides are through protection, through salvation, through sustenance, namely water, and he also provides them land. 
Let's look, first of all, at the provision of protection. Beginning in verse 1, it says, When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of the Athirim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. Now, the city of Arad is located on the southern edge of the land of Canaan. It's right here. So the battle takes place again before they actually begin their journeys. Now, Arad's significant because uh, this is where the Israelites had initially tried to enter the land. Remember, after they were, they, they, they said they didn't want to go into the land. And as discipline, God said, okay, I'm, you can't enter the land and I'm not going to be for you. But then in presumption, they decided, well, they're going to try it anyway. And they, they got walloped. And so most likely when the king of Arad heard, hey, the Israelites are in the area again and they're pretty weak and cowardly because they got walloped pretty easily. Let, I'm going to go out and attack them. And so he, he attacks them unprovoked. And note how Israel responded. The text says that they vowed a vow to the Lord. Now, the point is, is that they turned to God. Instead of being presumptuous like they did the last time in Numbers 14, they trust in him. They look to him rather than just their own strength. And in their prayer, they, they, they vowed a vow. They said, God, if you will give us victory, we will devote everything that we conquer to destruction. That's a very a specific word. And it, it, it doesn't just entail destruction. What's behind it is that everything that they take will, be, um, will belong to God. It's His. So the point isn't just um, destruction as much as it is, Lord, we know this belongs to you. And we're, so we're going to offer it up as a burnt offering, so to speak. And that's, of course, what God wanted them to do. God was disciplining, judging the king of Arad and the Canaanites, as we know. And so the point of this oath is that they didn't expect to take anything for themselves. And note the beginning of verse 3. Yahweh heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites. See, God answered their request. And just, we need to see this. God answered the request of the, the people who for 40 years have been grumbling and complaining and discontent. The, the same people who, when he promised to give them victory, were too cowardly to believe him. The same people who he has had to discipline again and again and again. And yet when they call upon him in their time of need, he looks over all of that and he answers their prayer. And we need to remember that because we all know how much we fail. And it's very easy, especially in light of our sin, our past, maybe even recent sin, to think God's done with me. I can't ask him for help because I've been so wicked. Brothers and sisters, that's not true. All the Lord would want from you is just acknowledge you were wrong. Ask for forgiveness and then plead. He wants you to plead for assistance. He wants to give you assistance. And that's why this text is here. Is so that you would know that you would have assurance. God is for you. If you would look to him. God is quick to respond, especially to the cries of the weak and the oppressed. Now, they might not immediately see how he is hearing their prayers, but they can be assured that he does hear them. That he has not turned his face away. How can I say that? Well, I'd like to I'd like all of you to turn in your Bibles, keep your finger here, but turn in your Bibles to Psalm 145. I want you to see this promise. Because you will need to cling to this promise sometime in the future. Psalm 145, let's just begin at verse 18. Yahweh is near to all 
who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. Yahweh preserves all who love him. But all the wicked he will destroy. And that's manifested here in Numbers 21. That's actually the point. The reason the Lord gave them victory this time at Hormaz because unlike the first time, they cry out to him. They seek his help and then being assured that he will help them, they fight. And, and, I, and I, I want us to see that too. Notice that they still chose to fight. Even though when they went up against the same people, they were walloped. They got their teeth kicked in, so to speak. And yet they had courage to do it again. Because even though they got defeated again, they knew now God is on our side. And so you've got to see this. They believed in God's power and in his desire to support them so much so that they were willing to put their life on the line. And God honored their fight. They didn't just simply ask God, hey, God, you fight for us and we'll stand back and just watch you destroy the bad guys. Nor did they they seek for a sign and say, "Okay, we'll go if if we can have absolute assurance that you're going to be for us. No, they show their faith by acting upon their confidence that God would respond to their prayers because they believed him. Faith confidently cries out to God and then acts according to what they believe God to be. As, as William Carey, the father of modern missions, says, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. I'll say it again. Expect great things from God and then attempt great things for God. And when God answers their prayers, Israel did uphold their vow. See, in remembrance of God's goodness and his grace and his protection, they called the uh, the area that they had defeated Hormah, which means devoted to destruction, as a reminder that this land belonged to Yahweh. It had been given over to him because he gave them victory. In other words, it was his victory. And they were acknowledging it. They weren't taking any credit for themselves. You've got to just see how there's a shift even in Israel's mentality in Numbers 21. And it starts here by them crying out to the Lord when they desperately needed protection. The next way he provides for them is in salvation from death. Now, this, of course, is probably the most well-known account in all the book of Numbers. And that's because... Jesus himself refers to this event in John chapter 3, which is arguably the most well-known chapter in all the Bible, except for maybe Psalm 23, because in John 3, 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever should believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So everybody, at least most people, are very aware of John 3, 16, and it's, the verses immediately preceding John 3.16, they actually refer to the, the bronze snake, this account here. But there's much more to this story than just uh, 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 being emblematic of Christ's work on the cross. Now, it does definitely point to Christ's astonishing work of salvation. But there's, there's more to this story as a whole. Note that the text actually begins with the repeated grumbling of the Israelites. Same complaints that they brought up before. And the point is not that Israel was unfaithful yet again. That's not the point of the passage. But that God provided for them again, even though they were unfaithful yet again. And notice why he provided. They acknowledged their sin and they sought the Lord for help. Now, this is profoundly significant. 
Because we don't ever see them acknowledging that they did something wrong. Up till now. Notice the verse 7. We have sinned. They admit it. We have spoken against Yahweh and against you. Now, we all know people who never will admit that they are wrong. Right? It's always somebody else's fault. It was always, or, or just bad circumstances, bad luck. Always making excuses. They, even when it's staring them in the face, they just, they can't admit that they were the ones who were in error. Well, that's Israel. See, before they were simply the victims of Moses' bad leadership or God's crazy plan to bring him out of the good land back in Egypt into this desert. They're victims of God. They have to eat all this nasty food. But here they finally admit that they actually are the ones that are at fault. Now, notice also the text says that the people became impatient along the way. Now, this is understandable because this is a long journey. Probably, who knows, maybe at least months, months and months and months, 400 miles they had to walk. I'm sure they were tired of living in the wilderness. And it's possible, too, that they even recognized that the reason they had to take this extended journey was because their leader made a horrific mistake. And so, this would, of course, dampen their appreciation for Moses each step of the journey. And yet, Moses is not the one at fault in this text. It's the people. Because it was they who became impatient. It was they who spoke against God and against Moses. The fact that it was against both God and Moses actually emphasized. Notice verse 5 and verse 11. So that the point is, they've, they've had it with both their earthly rulers or ruler and their heavenly ruler. Like they're done. They can, they can handle it themselves. The, their problem is their leaders. And the, the, in particular, they actually complain with God's provision of manna again. <laughs> Notice they call it worthless food. Of course, they say this after they said, we have no food. <laughs> but then they say, yeah, okay, we have food, but it's worthless. And that phrase actually means good for nothing. Now, of course, this isn't true. And they know it's not true because this is what has been sustaining them for 40 years. It was, it was full of whatever nutrients they needed. So this is just a lie. It's not good for nothing. In fact, if, they, if it really was, and if they really thought it was good for nothing, they could choose not to eat it. But of course they had been eating it because they knew that's what they needed to sustain them. I think when people get sick and tired of anything, they'll almost believe anything in order to get rid of it. Even if what they're believing isn't true. Any excuse to get rid of what I'm sick and tired of, I'll believe it. So, case in point, the whole world got tired of wearing masks after a year. Now imagine having to wear masks for 40 years because your leader had blundered. Or leaders. Because the reason they had to wander for 40 years is because the 11 spies were too cowardly to enter the land. And they're the ones, their children, are the ones that have to pay the penalty for it. So you could imagine just how sick and tired they were of wandering. It's easy to scoff at the Israelites for their impatience and grumbling. But just given our tendency to grumble over just a year of difficulty, would we have fared much better? I mean, let's be honest. Forty years in a desert. No permanent home. 
very little shelter. All because your leader made a foolish choice. Your leaders. I don't say that at all to defend the, the, the Israelites. They, they were in horrific sin because of their grumbling and complaining against Moses and God. And they very much deserve the punishment they received. And even they recognize that. Verse 7. They, they, de- they deserve severe punishment for their complaining. Which is why the Lord did judge them by sending these serpents upon them. Fiery serpents, it says, among the people. And they bit the people so that many people died. And the description of the serpents is fiery signifies that these serpents were sent as an act of God's judgment. The reason the bronze serpent was bronze is to signify, again, it was fiery. Now, fire in, in the Bible is uh, significant in that it refers to judgment. It's symbolic of judgment. And we've even seen that in the book of Numbers so far. In Numbers 11 and 1 through 3, God sends fire to burn the edges of the camp after the people complained about their misfortunes in Numbers 16, 25, when the non priest presumed that they could offer up infants, they were consumed with a blaze of fire. Fire is indicative of God's judgment and thus hell is described as a lake of fire. Revelation 21, 8. And the fact that God sends serpents is significant as well, because, as you know, serpents are symbolic of Satan and his work. And so the the greater point of the symbolism in God's judgment of sending the fiery serpents is to convey to the people that they have been infected by the poison of Satan. And that is being manifested in their grumbling and their complaining, in their rebellion. His point is you are acting like your father, the devil. First John 3.10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. God's point is it's satanic to grumble and complain and to rebel. And those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Because they're still children of the devil or children of wrath, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, 3. And they prove that by their actions. Turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. One of my favorite texts in all scripture, and I'll explain why in a minute. Galatians 5. Beginning in verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Let me pick it up here. Enmity. Strife. Jealousy. Fits of anger. Rivalries. Dissensions. Divisions. That's Israel. Half of this list refers to grumbling, complaining, causing divisiveness, rebelling. He goes on, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The reason I love this verse is because up until I read this verse when I was a a high school student, I was living a life of sin. And yet I was, in my eyes, the, the godliest person I knew. Devout Roman Catholic altar boy that would pray the rosary once a week. Would fast even weeks at a time to display my devotion to the Lord. And yet I was 
as immoral as most of my friends. And this was the verse that brought me to repentance because the first time I realized this describes me. God expects me to live differently. And I didn't know that. I mean, that may sound obvious to you, but it wasn't. Honestly, it wasn't to me. And I read this list and I kept thinking, yeah, this is me. This is me. And then I read, and those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And for the first time in my life, I realized my life was more characterized by Satan than it was by Christ. And I think this is often the case with many professing believers. People who, who like the Israelites, they think they're following God. I mean, they've been wandering around in the, industry, in the desert for 40 years following him. They're followers of God. And yet by their actions, they show that they have Satan's poison, poison pulsating through their veins. They are children of Satan. Even though they think they are following God. See, salvation transforms a person to have totally different desires, totally different affections. They no longer want to live according to what they feel like, but they want to honor God. They care more about honoring Him than getting what they want. They used to grumble when they were asked to obey, but now they obey from the heart. See, those whose lives are characterized by disobedience and rebellion demonstrate that they never had that transformative experience. They've never been born again. They just follow God externally. But they don't really want to love Him with all they are. They want maybe the benefits of going to church, of having such friends that love them. But in their heart of heart, they really don't want to obey God. And God sends these fiery serpents to judge his people who are precisely there to help them see the true nature of their condition. God doesn't want to hurt them. He wants them to wake up. He wants them to see the real problem is their heart. They need a new heart. They need to have their heart circumcised is the Old Testament phrase. They need to be born again. And in his judgment, there's immense mercy, and we can't miss this. Because when the people acknowledge their sin and they plead for God's mercy, what happens? He provides it. And that is the main point of the story. God provides salvation to any who would seek it. Any who would call upon his name. And notice how this point is conveyed. Verse 8. Numbers 21.8. And Yahweh said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. And the repetition in verse 9 stresses this point of looking and therefore living. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So this, this act of looking at the bronze serpent was an act of faith because that person believed that if they looked upon that serpent, they would be saved from the serpent's bite. And so now we can understand the imagery as Jesus applies it to himself in John 3 when he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So, so just as the Israelites exercise, exercise faith by looking up to the bronze serpent, when a person recognizes their wrong and looks to Christ for salvation, they will be saved. And we need to see the connection between faith and confession in this story. See, the offer of salvation was given to those who recognized they needed to be saved. They needed help. They, were, they will die without help. They recognized they deserve all the consequences of their sinful thoughts and their words and their actions. 
And until a person recognizes they deserve damnation, they deserve death, they deserve all the consequences of sin, until a person recognizes that, they won't want Christ. At least they won't want what Christ came to give them because they don't need it. They may want forgiveness. They may want to have a better life. They may want peace. But they won't look to Christ for the reason He came, which is to free them from their slavery to sin and the just consequences for it. Until a person realizes they deserve condemnation, they can't exercise faith. And this point is made very clearly in contrasting the lives of David and Saul. I bring up David and Saul because in the men's discipleship group on Sunday evenings, this is, we're actually in the book of 1 Samuel, and one of the points of 1 Samuel is to highlight that David behaved like God's king and Saul did not. And one of the primary ways that they are contrasted is when David was confronted for his sin, he admitted it. And cried out to God for help. When Saul was confronted for his sin, it was always somebody else's fault. Right? When David was confronted, Psalm 32, Psalm 51, even 2 Samuel 24, he confessed his sin. He acknowledged it. He he even published it for um, everybody throughout history to see. I'm guilty. And he pleaded for the Lord's help in those Psalms. However, Saul made excuses when confronted by Samuel after being impatient for him to show up at Gilgal. He blamed the people for scattering. And then he blamed Samuel for showing up late. And then he said that he forced himself to sin because of them. When Saul failed to destroy the items that were supposed to be devoted to destruction after conquering the Amalekites. And he didn't do so. He blamed the people. Even though he was the one that was in charge. See, Saul never accepted responsibility for his sins, except maybe momentarily. He, he acknowledged after his life was in the hands of David and David spared his life. He said, OK, I've done wrong. But then he went right back to his bad behavior. There's no real repentance. But David published multiple lament psalms declaring his guilt and need for forgiveness. See, only those who recognize that they are sinners in desperate need of forgiveness will look to Christ as a Savior from that judgment. And if they don't see they justly deserve condemnation, they don't see that they need a Savior. 1 John 1, verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So here we see God provide salvation from death. In verse, verses 10 through 20, we see Him provide water for His people. And these chapter, sorry, these verses list various locations where Israel stopped on their journey to Moab. And most of these locations have been lost to antiquity, and so we don't really know where they're at today. And, and therefore, the, the information for us is largely unhelpful. However, besides noting these locations where they stopped, there's an emphasis in verses 16 and 18 on the well that they dug. In fact, the word occurs four times in three verses. And actually, the word well only occurs a handful of times in the Old Testament. So there's a clear emphasis on the well. And wells in the Old Testament, as you can imagine, were a necessary means of sustenance. Because they're living in a desert. And you need water to survive, both for yourself and for livestock. And in in Israel, there's two million people that needed water. So you needed an abundance of water as well that would last over a period of time. And the text particularly emphasizes that it was a well which God provided for the people. Notice it says, 
Gather the people together so that I may give them water. Verse 16. And so the main, the main point here is that God provided water for them when they were most desperate for it. God knows what we need. That's the point. And he will provide for us what we need. In fact, Jesus made this point emphatically in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And of course, Jesus also used the imagery of a well in John 4 when he was with the Samaritan woman. And he said, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the point is, is that he himself is the one that will bring us the satisfaction that we all need. He, he will meet all the needs that we really have. He alone is what we need. He is our all in all is the point. The well in the wilderness is just emblematic of that. The well is what God provided. And likewise, if we have Christ, we have all that we need. He is our satisfaction. He is our peace. Another thing to note, too, in this passage is that apparently it was the princes and the nobles that actually dug the well. And that's remarkable. So remarkable that the people write a song about it. And that's the focus of the song, is that it was on the leader's participation. And maybe that's why it was such a memorable event. It was because maybe for the first time they saw their leaders actually doing the dirty work. Not just ordering somebody else to do it. They were willing to get their hands dirty. And of course, Jesus himself also exemplified such leadership. Not only willing to get his hands dirty, but his whole being See, he, the eternally glorious second person of the Trinity, who in eternity past dwelt in unapproachable light. He took on human flesh and dwelt in a, in a world that was corrupted by sin, surrounded by a people corrupted by sin in their language, in their actions. And even though he never sinned once, he took all of that sin, all that upon himself when he suffered our penalty on the cross so that we wouldn't have to. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And the reason he did that, the reason he became sin, is so that we would never thirst again. That was his point to the Samaritan woman. I came so that you would not thirst any longer. He came to provide all our needs, even our greatest spiritual thirsts. God also provided land for the Israelites on their journey to the promised land, verses 21 to 35. The point of this section is just that God gives the Israelites a bunch of land as a gift. Land that they weren't looking for. Land that they didn't expect. But he went out of his way to give it to them. Verses 21 through 35 narrate the conquest of this land. It was taken from these two major Amorite kings. See, they weren't, again, they weren't seeking to attack these kings. In fact, they were trying to avoid them if possible. They did ask for passage. They weren't going to take anything. They weren't going to rough anybody up. They were just going to pass through their land. But instead of this uh, proposal of peace, 
The first king responded by attacking him. And they fought back and the Lord gave them victory. And what's significant is the, the land that they took ends up being given to uh, the two and a half tribes who choose not to actually travel over across the Jordan River into the rest of the land of Canaan. So the reason the Israelites, particularly Gad, the half tribe of Manasseh and Reuben, the reason they dwelt here is because God gave them this land. They weren't originally going to get this land. But God gave it to them. And the song that's highlighted in verses 27 to 30, you'll note, is not actually an Israelite song. It's a pagan war song that was actually written to taunt another nation that they destroyed. So it was the Amorites taunting the Moabites. They took this land from the Moabites and they're taunting them in this song. And it's quoted here to emphasize that Israel taunted the taunters. So the Amorites have to eat their own words, so to speak. And so there's a there's an aspect of divine justice that we're supposed to see here. God will give to bullies what they deserve. It may not be immediate, but he will judge them in his own good time. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 75, 4 through 7. See this in a psalm. This is actually one of the readings this week. Psalm 75, verse 4. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with a haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. So God exercises discipline, judgment over Sihon of the Amorites, but he uses that situation to actually give the land to Israel. And this is the main point of the section is seen in the last through the last few verses, particularly verse 35. The chapter ends. And they possessed his land. See, God provoked these enemies to attack Israel so that Israel would then in return receive all this land. See, what initially would have appeared to men as a frightful injustice, a a peaceful people simply asking for passage, unprovoked, were attacked. God turned it around to humble mighty nations in the process and to give Israel a massive gift. But recognize that they wouldn't have this land unless they had been unjustly attacked first. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. Brothers and sisters, We don't know what the Lord's up to. We can guess and sometimes maybe looking back over history, we can come to some conclusions. But especially in difficult circumstances, God's up to way more than we could possibly imagine. And maybe this truth is best illustrated in the life of Joseph. I mean, who would have thought? That God would use the enmity that he, had, that, that he had with his brothers. So that they would sell him into slavery. So that he would be then sent to the land of Egypt. Where there, as a slave, he would be falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. And then end up in Pharaoh's jail on account of that. And while there, that he would meet the cupbearer who would shortly forget about him, even though he interpreted his dream, so that the cupbearer 
when the right moment came, could then tell Pharaoh that there was a person who could interpret dreams. When the Pharaoh was disturbed with his dreams. And then Joseph's interpretation leads him to become the second most powerful person in all of Egypt, which was the most powerful nation in the world at that time. So that God would preserve the Egyptians during a time of famine. And so that Israel could be moved to the land of Egypt, where 400 years later, God would rescue them from slavery with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and show to all the world that he is the sovereign God and he will save his people. See, God is, God is always up to way more than we could possibly imagine in our lives. And the whole, whole story of Israel really tells us this. Again and again, God is working things that no man could have ever foreseen. So that we, even today, might recognize that He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And He will provide everything that we will ever need. And so, the remaining question for us then is this. Will you trust Him? Will you trust Him to provide for you as He leads you in your journey through life? We trust Him and recognize His goodness, His love, His mercy, and His sovereignty that is all directed for your good. We trust Him. Let's pray. Father, we want to trust You. And we admit that it is so easy to fear. It, we, we're just so used to relying upon our own understanding and our own resources. And Lord, we admit we often look to the wrong sources for help. Lord, when we should just turn to You first and wait for You. And Lord, we admit we don't trust You as we should. And so we also pray. Lord, You say, even in this passage, those who cry out to You, You will help. So we ask that You would help us. Help us to trust You. So we might honor You. And be faithful lights in the midst of this wicked generation. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.